Sunday, week three of the NFL on CBS features a whole host of great matchups, including the Chargers taking on the Chiefs, Burroughs Bengals clashing with Big Ben Steelers, and the Dolphins facing a tough test in Vegas against the Raiders. Coverage begins at noon Eastern with JB and the guys on the NFL Today. Sunday, the NFL is on CBS. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, last week saw the 50th anniversary of the founding of Greenpeace. And as listeners may know, I spent my formative years working for them. And I spent a number of those years at sea chasing whaling ships around the Antarctic, among other things. Uh, And my dad was really proud of this, not necessarily because he agreed with my worldview, but because he'd been in the Navy. And so even though the circumstances were very different, he liked the fact that one of his sons spent time at sea. And honestly, if you'd asked me at age 23, I would have fully expected that that would have been my life's work. Hmm. And yet, now that I am 53, I look back and I realize I spent less of my life doing that than I have spent watching and commentating on men and women with virtually no body fat standing on bathroom scales (laughs) in their underwear and flexing before proceeding to punch each other into oblivion. Ah, Dad's no longer around. I don't know if he'd be quite so proud. <laughs> well, Karen, uh, they say uh, life's a journey, not a destination, and you don't know just what tomorrow brings. Uh, and, and by they, I mean Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, a, a poet laureate <laughs> of cliches, apparently. Um, but yeah, you, you can do all the planning you want for what you think your future will be. Things are bound to go in some unexpected directions. Um, I'm now a couple weeks past my 24th anniversary of when I started covering boxing. Uh, I might have mentioned some of this on past podcasts, but I was three months out of college when I got my first real job as associate editor of The Ring magazine. And my thought at the time, I didn't care about boxing, but I loved pro wrestling. I was a pro wrestling illustrated subscriber and super fan in my teens, and it was all part of the same company. So when I interviewed at The Ring, with the legendary, in my mind, Stu Sachs, editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling (laughs) Illustrated all those years. And I saw the great Bill Apter sitting at his desk, and I got the job uh, for absolute shit wages. Uh, My game plan was, well, do this boxing thing for a couple of months until something opens up in the wrestling department, and then I can move over. But a month or so later, I attended my first fight card, which I've talked about plenty, watched Gaddy knock out Ruelas in the fight of the year in the co-feature, And I was hooked on boxing Uh, and I continued to make that shit pay for seven and a half years (laughs) working full time in boxing media before finally finding a real job and making boxing my side gig. And now I've been doing that for 16 and a half years. And uh, so I guess the big takeaways for me are uh, one. Wow, I I must be old to have been doing anything this long. And uh, two, it's good to make plans and, and have goals, but you got to be flexible and willing to go where the road leads you because sometimes the Greenpeace plan or the Pro Wrestling Illustrated plan doesn't pan out. Although I, I guess for me, either way, I was going to be staring at men or women in their underwear. <laughs> That's right. And earning shit wages one way or the other. 
<laughs> I have ro- risen to uh, modest wages over shit ah. wages. Yes. Okay. Well, can you send us some money then? Because uh, we'll talk offline. Uh, right. But uh, it may it may be that I'll do some math and realize uh, that I have to tell you I'm still making shit wages. Actually. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Perfectly understood. Yeah. When I started doing this, as I think I've mentioned, I was just going to take a little bit of time out from that other part of my life and just spent about, I don't know, eight months or so writing a book about boxing in Las Vegas. And that was 18 years ago. So right. here we are. <laughs> it, it it sinks its claws in, Kieran. And, uh, it does. Some, for some people, it releases its grip. Uh, for others, it does not. You no, know, indeed. Just kind of like the claws dig in deeper and deeper. Yep. But there you go. But that notwithstanding, we are, I think both of us actually feel pretty happy uh, to be involved and in, in, in commentating on the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think that this week's podcast, as a consequence, should have a different vibe than the last couple. Uh, we actually have some good stuff to talk about with boxing, unlike the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have qu- actual quality fights to preview. Uh, and a relative lack of sad circus fights to focus on. So that's that's something. Um, we'll talk about some genuinely first-rate fights uh, being signed and announced. And that includes the welterweight clash between Terence Crawford and Sean Porter. We will preview Saturday's heavyweight showdown between Anthony Joshua and Alexander Usyk. Uh, Eric will count down his top five fights that demonstrate why Evander Holyfield was an all-time great. And... After a recent run of bad luck with COVID cancellations, we have our first Showtime fight card in a little while to preview. Uh, shortly, we will welcome to the podcast one of the headliners of that Friday Showbox card, Detroit Bantamweight, Jericho O'Quinn. And we will advise that he comes with his own parental advisory warning. He has been known to drop an F-bomb or two. He is also known to have plenty of self-confidence. But we'll find out about that later. And first, let's break down this three-byte card from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Yeah, the main event features the man you just mentioned, Jericho O'Quinn, who sports a record of 14-0-1 with eight KOs. He's taking on Saul Sanchez, 16-1 with nine knockouts in a scheduled 10-rounder. O'Quinn fought on Showbox once before, back in January 2020, one of the last few Showbox cards before the pandemic rolled in. He won an eight-round decision over pain-in-the-ass Oscar Vasquez, and our feeling was that the jury was still out on O'Quinn. We needed to see him against a different style. He hasn't fought since. He, he's coming off a 20-month layoff here, and his opponent, Sanchez, has fought four times in that span. Sanchez from Encino, California is 24 years old, while O'Quinn, who you mentioned is from Detroit, is 26. Sanchez is trained by Manny Robles, who trains Andy Ruiz, among others. This fight could well be a crowd pleaser. These are both fighters who throw and land a lot more power punches than jabs. We will, of course, get Jericho's insights into the matchup shortly, but first give me yours, Kieran. What are your recollections of seeing O'Quinn in 2020? Any quick thoughts on the style matchup? And could the huge difference in recent activity play a role in the outcome of this fight? Yeah, as you mentioned, I, I went back and I, I re-listened to the podcast we did after that uh, fight. And yeah, we did feel that the jury was still out in O'Quinn after that. It, it was something of a fight of two halves. Uh, Jerico really sort of separated himself over the back half of that bout. And we were impressed with his work rate. And we did make particular mention of his body punches. We did note also that at least during the first half of the bout, he seemed to be focusing so much on his offense. He was allowing Vasquez to hit him cleanly more often than be ideal. And, and we noted, as indeed did the announced team ringside, that a better opponent 
landing that many clean punches, you know, would cause him some problems. That said, uh, O'Quinn has shown an ability, even at this stage of the game, to adapt somewhat to his opponent. He was the aggressor against Vasquez, but in an off-TV bout just a couple months previously, he was pushed back and being outworked a little by James Gordon-Smith, but landed the better punches with the greater accuracy on his way to a points decision. So um, I'm not super concerned by his time away from the ring. It's never really ideal, especially when your opponent's been so active, but it would be a bigger issue, I think, if he were a different kind of fighter, if he was a cutie kind of boxer, if he relied on footwork and movement and timing, you know, the kind of things that can be hard for your muscle memory to retain. But because he's generally, like I said, although he can adapt, he's generally more of a high output action fighter. I I don't think he'll require too long to get back up to speed. Um, That said, I don't think he can really afford to drop even a round or two early on. Because if my guess is right, you asked about the style matchup, I mm-hmm. think, I think you're exactly right. I think this stands to be a tight, exciting, all-action battle that could really go down to the wire. We talked about O'Quinn's disdain for the jab against Vasquez. Sanchez is no different. Uh, 15.4 of his CompuBox recorded average 17.1 connects per round of power punches, Sanchez. Uh, get this, 48.5% of those landed punches are body shots. Hmm. So that's 8.3 body shots per round for Sanchez against O'Quinn's 7.4 per round. This is a meeting of action fighters who love to throw to the body. Fully expect this to be an in-your-trenches, tough body-sapping affair from start to finish, I think. There are two other fights on this card, uh, featuring four boxes with just one loss between them. Classic showbox matchmaking in the co-main. It is a 10-rounder between featherweights Javon Garnett of Cincinnati and Luis Nunez of the Dominican Republic. Garnett is 26 years old, 10-0 with five KOs. Nunez is just 21, and he's 11-0 with eight KOs. Uh, Both are relatively untested and are stepping up to face what appears to be their toughest opponent today. And in the opening bout, eight rounds at lightweight. A familiar face to Showbox viewers. Alejandro Porkchop Guerrero tries to bounce back from his first official loss against Abraham Montoya in February. He is 12-1 with nine KOs, and he takes on Otar Eranosian, 9-0 with six KOs, known as Pitbull, which is kind of a scary nickname, especially if your nickname is Porkchop. Eranosian <laughs> um, is 28 years old from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, while Guerrero is 23 and fights out of Houston. Eric, give us a quick storyline to track in each fight, and is there one fighter among the four? you're particularly eager to see. Well, my first instinct from reading up on them was to say Aronosian, the the pit bull from a former Soviet country, extensive amateur background. The last couple of decades of evidence suggests that that's a good (laughs) formula. But I watched some clips and, you know, he looks a bit raw. This fight Mm. with Porkchop Guerrero might actually be quite competitive. I don't think... After watching some some video of him, I don't think Aronosian is the highest upside prospect on the undercard. Rather, I think that designation goes to Luis Nunez. It's hard to tell because he hasn't faced great opposition, but the talent appears to be there. He's very tall. He's five foot seven and actually moving up from 122 here to 126. At that height, he can certainly go higher as he fills out, but from what I've seen of, of these four fighters, if you asked me which one is going to be headlining a showbox one or two fights from now, I'd guess Nunez. Uh, as for storylines, in the Nunez-Garnett fight, yes, it's a step up for both, but it's a bigger step up for Garnett, who has faced only two opponents with winning records, 
and has never, before now, faced an opponent coming off a win in his previous fight. That's an unusual Mm. stat. Ten fights all against opponents either coming off a loss or making their pro debut. Um, But Garnett does appear to have some skill from what I've watched him, so it could be a competitive bout. As for an Aranosian Guerrero storyline, there's the obvious one of Guerrero trying to come back from a loss and a bit of a layoff and doing so against a very tough opponent. But perhaps more interesting is a quick look at the CompuBox stats, which suggest we should see good action here. Guerrero averages 74.4 punches thrown per round. Aranosian averages 69.3. And in his loss to Abraham Montoya, Guerrero's defense was less than spectacular. Montoya averaged 31.5 power shots landed per round. Those are some uh, Arturo Gatti forgetting about defense kind of numbers there. Uh, He's going to have to tighten that up and be smart or else Aronosian is a solid favorite to hand him his second straight defeat. All right. So plenty to look forward to there. Uh, Let's go back to the main event and to one of the fighters in that main event. And let's have a little chat with him now. He fights out of the Motor City of Detroit, Michigan. He will enter the ring on Friday with a record of 14-0-1 with eight KOs. He is very much looking to make an impression in his first Showtime main event. He is Jericho O'Quinn. Jericho, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Jerico, you're fighting Saul Sanchez on Friday, and I've seen interviews where you said you don't know much about Sanchez, and yet you're oozing confidence that he's in trouble against you. I'm curious, how can you be so sure you're going to be too much for him if you don't really know that much about him and don't really know if he's any good? Because at the time, I didn't see no uh, film or nothing like that. They got printed. They got I got presented a name, and I accepted it. And I'm going to do my research. My team going to do their research. I'm going to come up with a game plan. And once we come up with a game plan, can't nobody fuck with us. <laughs> <laughs> so so have you seen some tape of him now since saying that? Or you still haven't watched anything yet? Yeah, I've seen some. Okay. I've seen- <laughs> and so, so you stand by what you said, that uh, he's in big trouble? I stand on it. And, and and just curious, how do you usually go into the into fights? Do you are you comfortable with not knowing much about the opponent and figuring him out in the ring, or do you I mean, usually? I competed at the best. I competed at the best level uh, there is in the amateurs, you know. So, you know, you didn't really have time to get no film or come up with no game plan. It was a luck of a draw. I get this person, I get that person. You don't know who you fighting, and then next, you know, a couple of hours later, you're fighting. You know what I'm saying? Right. So. I go in the ring, I make my adjustments, and that's going to be that, you know. Hopefully he can make his and make it an entertaining fight, but if he can't, it's going to be an early night. Right. Um, if I understand correctly, you've made a, a change to your training for this fight. Like, in the past, you'd work, like, a full 60-hour week in construction while training, but this time you've really, like, stopped work and focused purely on the training. And I'm, and I'm wondering, how do you feel about that? Do you, does your body feel a lot better? Do you feel a lot better going into the fight with that different approach? Yeah, yeah, I feel a lot better. My body feels a lot better. I feel a lot better mentally, physically, everything, because I get to work out two times a day now, and I haven't been able to do that. And it just gives me extra. I'm always an extra confident person, but it just gives me extra, extra confidence. You know what I'm saying? Knowing that I'm crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's, you know what I'm saying? So I ain't worried about nothing so I chance to bring to the table. I fought plenty of times. I fought plenty of Mexicans. So I fought, you know what I'm saying? So many people in the amateurs, I spar so much. So it ain't really 
nothing he can bring to the table that I haven't seen from what I've seen to him. Mm. I, I can't even imagine how exhausting it must have been to do training after working like a full day, like in a full day in construction too. I, I mean, you must have, did you, how was it? Did you almost feel depleted by the time fight night came around? Yeah. It was like, man, I go to the, I go to work, and I work my job, and then I'm left with like 30 percent of me to go to the put in the gym. So I wasn't giving boxing my all. I I haven't been able to get boxing my all because you know I got life and bills yeah. and all that type of stuff. You know what I'm saying? In construction, that's a very physical job. I'm holding yeah. 30, 40 pound hammers over my head, sixty pound jackhammers. We we jackhammer parking decks. And we can't let the jackhammers fall through once we blow a hole through. So we got to catch a 60-pound hammer. You feel me? 90-pound hammer sometimes. You know, so it's a very physical job. You know what right. I'm saying? So that takes all my energy before I can even get to the gym. Yeah. And you're and you're not a big guy. It's not like you're a 225-pound guy handling that. Where This is a bantam weight. That thing's almost as big as you. Holding a a hammer that's more than half my size. And then when you get the air hooked up to it and everything, it's even more weight. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it vibrates your hands, how your hands aching, all okay. types of stuff. Yeah. Mm. Make, makes me appreciate uh, being able to just sit here in a chair at my computer all day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so so let's back way up, Jerico. H- how did you first uh, get started in boxing? I got started in boxing because I was street fighting a lot. And... I just I just had a passion for street fighting because I grew up fighting in you know elementary school and all that stuff. And then you know, I ventured off, got into gangs activity in my neighborhood, and then one day uh, the the boxing gym my man I came to this recreation about my house and it was boxing people from the community. And from that day forward, shoot, I tried to I was trying to get into boxing, but it was like a whole year before my mom would let me actually joined the gym because I had a shirt and I had a number on. I'm like, Ma, take me up to this place. You know, take me to this place. I was calling the place, you know, trying to figure out the hours and everything. And then it was like a whole year later, she finally because she didn't want me to do it. But my dad was like, no, forget it. You know what I'm saying? Let, let's let him do it. But eventually, you know, a whole year later, I kept on bugging them about it. Like, I want to do this. And they see me watching it and doing my push-ups and sit-ups and stuff at home. And they seen that I was eager to do it. They was they dropped me off in the gym one day. It took me to the gym, signed me up, dropped me off, and it was history from there. I sparred the first week I was there. I got an exposition like the first three weeks, and then I fought in like a month. <laughs> right in at the deep end. So so as far as your mom's uh, hesitance to let you do it, that was just a typical sort of protective mom who who knows it's a violent sport and and didn't want you getting hit. Yeah, and then you know I had my head bust open when I was little. Being a bad kid, you know, I had stitches in my head in the front and the back. And uh, she was like, we're going to, you know, you know, your head going to mess around and get bust back open, blase, woo, this and that. And then she seen me watch people on on TV and they got big old cuts. It was like rap. It was the Raphael, the Raphael Vasquez and uh, oh, the Raf- two. Raf- they had Raphael Raf- Marquez and Israel Vasquez. Yeah, they had a whole bunch of fights over there. Yep. And they was cut open like a mug. Like, <laughs> and she seen that stuff and she was like, what you gonna do when that happened to you? That, mm, you know, that ain't, you ain't doing that. And then, eventually, as time went on, I know I'm telling her, like, shit, that ain't gonna happen to me. That gonna be me doing that to them. Ain't nobody gonna do that to me. You know, me being a kid, you know, like, that ain't gonna ever happen to me. I'm gonna be doing them. I'm gonna be busting them up. And that's why she ain't want me to do it. Gotcha. 
So, so obviously, if you decide to become a boxer in Detroit, I assume you're at least aware of and probably a fan of Tommy the Hitman Hearns. You're a big Hitman fan. And, and, and do people still talk about him a lot in the gyms there? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Tommy Hearns is actually uh, real active in uh, boxing. He had all the pro shows. Well, most of the pro shows he be at. So he still be around, floating around or whatever. You had a chance to talk to him at all? or? Yeah, he, uh, him and my granddad was real, real cool friends back in the day. So okay. whenever they get together, they link up and they talk or whatever. And so, yeah, we talk. I talk to him. Nice. Nice. You got, are there any other boxes who you kind of have, have looked up to anyone you kind of like enjoyed watching as a kid or you model yourself after at all? Uh, well, I just, I just watch boxers that I like and I just take what I can use from them. You know what I'm saying? Some things that I like from them that I can't use, some things that I, that I can't use and I try it in the gym, see if it worked for me. And I just take what worked for me. Um, so you are coming off a, a career-long inactivity. Uh, you, you fought on Showbox in January 2020, right before the pandemic, and you haven't fought since. Uh, it's been more than a year and a half. How frustrating was that period for you? It was frustrating because it was like, when boxing did come back on, it was like they was only giving people the shots. There was, uh, how can I say it? They was already on. They was already right. had a name for that, a big name. Mm-hmm. So it was like, damn, how am I going to get back in the mix or whatever? And then, like, it seemed like the pandemic ain't going to never slow up. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, damn, you know, what? what's next? You know what I'm saying? Like, how can I bring awareness to get noticed to get on these cars or whatever? But then the pandemic started breaking a little bit, and we out of the, uh, the, the stage where we can't have fans and stuff like that now. So you know, I'm back, and it is what it is now. All right. And coming into this fight, any concerns at all about ring rust? Nah. <laughs> that that fits with your confident uh, image that you that you that you got here. I guess I I should have predicted that answer. It ain't no it, it ain't no confident image. It's just I don't believe eh, it ain't gonna be no ring rust. Okay. okay. I, all right. It ain't ever really affect me. You know what I'm saying? I get in shape. You know, yeah. I get in shape, and that's it. Gotcha. Right, right. So that last time out uh, against Oscar Vasquez, you were able to fight at a fast pace. You outworked him. It was a clear decision win. But he looked like he was probably a pretty frustrating guy to fight, nonetheless. Like, how, how did you feel about that fight and your performance? Uh, it was a decent performance. You know, uh, I feel like he was trying to smother me a lot, you know, mm. hold on to me a lot, you know what I'm saying? But at the end of the day, it triggered me because he said that, he said he was going to make me stop in my corner, you know, mm-hmm. and I like to hold on. So I made sure I didn't do no holding on. I made him eat his words. I ain't mm-hmm. do no holding on. And I threw a hundred punches around. You know what I'm saying? You can expect yeah. me to be in that type of shape or better. You know, right. well, you can expect that many punches or more out of me. Because mm-hmm. every trainer camp don't do nothing but get harder. So what, one thing I noticed uh, in, in that fight and, and other fights is that you throw a lot of body shots. Is that something that's always been a part of your game? Pretty much, yeah. You know, my coaches always focus. They always telling me, even when I shoot to the body, I feel like they always telling me, "Ask more body punches in there." And my uh, uh, my defense coordinator said to me, "He's like, man, a lot of guys underestimate your body shots. They don't realize how hard your body shots really is. So they make me go down to the body even more." And so, yeah. So would would you say that's your best weapon, or is it is it is it something else? What would you say is your best weapon? I don't got a best weapon. All my weapons good. <laughs> <laughs> All 
again, I, I could have seen that answer coming probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So finally, you stepped up from your Showbox debut last time, your first headline this event this time. What's next if you beat Sal Sanchez? What's the game when plan I- from here? When you beat Sal Sanchez, there you go. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, that's whatever. You know, we got to go back to the drawing board, talk to my team, and whoever next, whoever in line, you know what I'm saying? If they're in my way, they're going to get it. And that's that. Dude, I can tell you, if you fight half as well on Friday as you interview, Sal Sanchez is in for a very long and difficult <laughs> night. I'll tell you that. You're a great interview. Thank you so much, man, for joining us. He, he, he info, you know, and the, the Mexican fighters, you know, they like to come forward a lot. The more he come forward, the worse it's going to be on him. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Rico, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. All the best on Friday. And uh, I hope we get to have you back on the show, Showtime Boxing Podcast soon. For sure. Well, I think we know who Jerico O'Quinn is picking in this fight. Um, hopefully, Kieran, you and I can be a bit more impartial. It's time to make our official picks. And every pick matters as we are three quarters of the way through the year and all tied up at 56 to 56. It's my turn to go first. So I've refreshed my memory on both of these guys, rewatched mm-hmm. their showbox appearances, checked out some other clips. And I'm pretty sure O'Quinn is a half notch above in terms of ability. Plus, I think Sanchez might be his dream style to look good against. Sanchez is a fine prospect himself. Before he started training with Manny Robles, he was trained by Joel Diaz. And, you know, trainers like those guys don't work with prospects who don't show some potential. But that said, Sanchez strikes me more as a fun fighter, a made-for-TV fighter, than an actual blue chipper. O'Quinn is more versatile. He can move a little better. He can alternate between boxing and brawling. And so, unless Sanchez has another gear that he hasn't shown yet... I think he's going to find himself just a bit overmatched. I'm expecting a 10-round distance fight. I don't think O'Quinn hits hard enough to stop Sanchez, although a body shot stoppage wouldn't shock me. You talked about the body shots these guys are likely to throw. But I think the most likely outcome is in 8-2, to 7-3 kind of decision in favor of our new friend, Jerico. How about you? Yeah, the scores are going to be even. After uh, okay. after this fight, <laughs> I can tell you that much. Uh, yeah, look, um, Sanchez might get off to a slightly better start, as we discussed, simply because he's been more active. Might be, he'd probably be likely to find that right gear a little bit earlier, but I don't think it'll take very long for O'Quinn to get right uh, up there with him. You know, I, well, one of the things that's interesting to me is that both men have shown signs of being stronger and better down the stretch of fights. They actually get better as the fight goes on. So, this isn't going to be a fight in which we're going to see either guy will here, I think. I think it is, at times, going to be proper phone booth stuff. Uh, um, and some of the rounds, I think especially early, are going to be close. But I agree with you. I think that O'Quinn has that more class. He has that higher ceiling. He's got that more activity. He's definitely got, I, I think, a greater punch variety. He has more places he can go to, I think, over the course of the fight. Uh, and I think he will take more of the close rounds than Sanchez will. And I think even though both will continue to be strong, he'll start to show his class, particularly down the stretch. And I do think it'll be a maybe a little bit closer than you have it, but it will be a unanimous decision win for Jerico O'Quinn. All right. We're rolling into October deadlocked. I like it. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, look, as much as we're looking forward to the Showbox card, and it should be a good card, um, 
we'd be lying if we said that O'Quinn Sanchez is the biggest fight of the coming weekend. That would, in fact, be Saturday at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, one of the finest soccer stadiums in the country. Wasted on the team that plays there, but there you go. That's another story. Uh, where Anthony Joshua, holder of assorted heavyweight belts, defends against former cruiserweight champ Alexander Usyk, uh, fighting in this weight class for the third time. Joshua hasn't fought in nine months since stopping Kubrat Pulev, while Usyk has been off 11 months since his victory over Derek Chisora, and I can scarcely believe that it's been almost a year since that happened, or that it's been nine months since since Joshua B. Pulev. Uh, no wonder we feel old. Um, <laughs> not so long ago, it looked like Usyk was going to fight Joe Joyce, because the plan, of course, was for AJ to take on Tyson Fury. But we all know what happened with Deontay Wilder's legal challenges. Joshua Fury got scrapped for now, so Usyk gets his shot. Uh, Eric, these are not the heavyweight fights we were hoping for in 2021. But what do you think of Joshua Usyk as a consolation prize? Where do you now stand on Usyk's potential, despite giving up probably some 25 to 30 pounds to upset those Joshua Fury plans once and for all? Well, on the first question, it's a great consolation prize, clearly. Uh, it's a fascinating matchup. A lot of people still have Usyk on their pound-for-pound list. I certainly did when he was a cruiserweight, and if he wins this fight, I think I have to put him back on my list. Um, Looking down the list of heavyweight contenders, you know, you remove Fury and Wilder from the equation, and you ask, you know, who do I want to see Joshua fight next out of everybody else? Well, he's already beaten Dillian White and Andy Ruiz. Mm -hmm. I think it has to be either Usyk or maybe Joe Joyce that shapes up Mm -hmm. as the most intriguing opponent for him. So... Look, Joshua might blast Usyk out in one or two rounds, and then it doesn't feel like much of a consolation prize. But going in, I'd say it is the best possible option to fill the Joshua Fury-sized hole in my heart. Um, And (laughs) in terms of the potential for the upset, I've come around a lot. Um, I wouldn't pick Usyk straight up. If this was part of our picks competition, I would be picking Joshua. But I wouldn't bet Joshua as a more than two-to-one favorite. He's far from safe here. I view the way Usyk fought against Chisora as something of a blueprint for what to expect here. I think, you know, that that he'll be looking to survive the first few rounds and then looking to step up the pace as Joshua potentially tires. Now, he might not survive those early rounds and (laughs) Joshua might not get gassed. You know, it's it's far from a foolproof plan if that is his plan. But we've seen Joshua lose to a smaller, faster opponent once before. uh, And we've seen his legs go semi-spaghetti a few rounds into a fight. So... Without a doubt, there are paths to an Usyk victory here. He obviously needs to avoid getting hit flush too many times by Joshua, and he might have trouble getting past AJ's jab. AJ is the favorite, no doubt. But after initially considering him a fairly comfortable favorite, now I've come around to thinking it's kind of close, regardless of the size gap. Uh, How about you, Kieran? How much does size matter in this one, in your view? And any guesses what style either man will fight in? Will we see an aggressive version of Joshua or the more cautious AJ who boxed a victory in the Andy Ruiz rematch? And does Usyk dare stand still in front of Joshua? No, Usyk is not going to stand still in front of Joshua if he can avoid it. And that's not just because of the size differential, um, but that's just not how he fights. Um, even at Cruiserweight, when he was, even when he was in fights when he was clearly the larger and better man, he, he would often fight like a cat slowly battering a mouse into submission, right? <laughs> Showing angles and boxing and jabbing and setting his man up to finish game. And if it didn't, it didn't. And and that's how he was at Cruiserweight. And that's how I expect him to be all the more so at heavyweight if he can. And, and I think that's what makes him such an intriguing addition to that heavyweight division. Because 
Although he is a small heavyweight by today's standards, he does bring footwork and skills and a unique style to the division. Um, and the smart thing for him would be to try and de- deploy those advantages as much as he's able, and Joshua's going to need to prevent him from doing that. Um, I've been thinking about this matchup for, for a while, really, since it first sort of looked like it was going to happen. And in a way, of all the possible big three guys, I feel like this is the best matchup for for Usyk, potentially. He could box circles around Deontay Wilder, but the risk of that one enormous haymaker right hand is 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 so huge. Tyson mm-hmm. Fury, I think, is the one guy that Usyk would have trouble outboxing, yeah. and he'd also be able to match him for ring intelligence while having a big size advantage. Joshua's kind of in the middle. He's like a good boxer, but not a great one. He's a big puncher, but not necessarily a massive one-punch KO artist. He's large, but he's not huge. Joshua has to thread a needle a little bit here, like use his size to impose himself when possible, but not at the expense of giving up his own boxing ability. He does need to use, as you mentioned, his very solid jab to try and keep Usyk as stationary and as close to being in front of him as possible. Um, He's the one heavyweight who might be able to match Usyk's hand speed in close. So like you said, even though Usyk probably won't want to stand in front of him, Joshua's probably going to want to try to drag him into exchanges. He sort of wants to be bigger and bulkier than Usyk to have that advantage, but not so bulky that he gets tired from trying to cut off the ring. And indeed, some of the reports I've seen from people who've been talking to him or from training camp are that Joshua's actually going to go for that slimmed down look. So okay. he might be looking for a little bit of mobility and speed to match Usyk. That might be his 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 approach here. Like you, in a straight-up picks, I will make Joshua the favorite. But only fractionally. I'm going to be very interested to see how the sports books have this later this week. Uh, I think it's a fascinating matchup. I wonder if there may be some really interesting prop bets to be had on this. I I think this is a really, really intriguing fight. All right. Um, All right. It is time for the tweet of the week. And uh, let's go all the way back to last Monday morning, 9.43 a.m., just 43 minutes (laughs) after our podcast posted. And the tweet of the week comes from last week's guest, Keith Eideck. Uh, You tweeted out a link to our podcast, Kieran. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Keith, quote, retweeted it with the line, Kieran even probed me about scheduling my next colonoscopy. And I just want to stop and appreciate the subtle, artful use of the verb probe. Absolutely. That's that's the way to make a dad joke without going overboard, calling attention to it. I I could probably learn a thing or two from that, frankly. Um, And then... (laughs) Uh, another recent guest, Fred Sternberg, responded to Keith's tweet with, "Rewatch Saturday's Triller Show before you go in. That will clean you out." Um, <laughs> I realize this is a very navel-gazing pick for Tweet of the Week, but uh, what can I say? This was fine use of Twitter all around, and Keith was great on last week's show, so he deserves this curtain call. That and and what does it say about uh, our bookers, which happen to be us? <laughs> yes, exactly. Good job, us. <laughs> Terms, terms of the of the talent we find to come on here. I almost responded to Keith with a, oh, you think that kind of probing was bad? Until I realized that, no, 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 that's exactly what he's doing. Shut up, Kieran. Don't, don't draw <laughs> right. attention to the obviousness of, of he, his is brilliant and subtle. Don't don't screw this up by being, you know, far too obvious. So. Well, good restraint by you then. So it's a three-part tweet, tweet of the week. It's, it's <laughs> Keith, <laughs> Keith gets credit, Fred gets credit for his response, and you get credit for not screwing for not up. Tweeting. Yes, <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, let's get to the news. And there's quite a bit of it this week, mostly surrounding fights being signed. The biggest of them, our news main event, 
is Top Rank and PBC reaching a deal for a major welterweight clash between Terence Crawford and Sean Porter November 20th at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas on ESPN Pay-Per-View. Crawford is reportedly guaranteed $6 million and Porter $4 million, plus the potential for them both to make more if the pay-per-view sells big. This isn't the fight we wanted for Crawford, but if a showdown with Errol Spence for true welterweight supremacy isn't going to happen yet, this has to be on the short list of contenders for next best thing. In Porter, Crawford is facing a man who is tangled with all the best 147-pounders of the last decade or so. He's fought Spence, Keith Thurman, Danny Garcia, Jordanis Ugas, Kel Brook. Crawford has faced none of those guys except a badly faded version of Brook in his most recent fight. My question for you, Kieran, is looking down Crawford's resume, would you say Porter will be the best opponent he's ever faced? Uh, And... We'll talk about predictions more as we get much closer, but right now, what kind of odds would I have to give you to bet on a Porter upset win? I kind of hate to say it, given how long Crawford has been at or near the top of the game, but I do think that Porter probably is the best opponent Buzz faced so far. You know, you could say that Uriokas Gamboa is more talented, but obviously at a much lower weight. Um, Jose Benavidez had the raw ability, but he was untested going into this fight, and just since disappeared. Um, Amir Khan and, as you mentioned, Kel Brook were past their best. Victor Postol is a very good boxer, but certainly without the ability to, to ask the kind of questions that Porter will pose. Um, and that's why, in many respects, Errol Spence's career is arguably a better one than Bud's to this point, even though I, for one, think that Bud remains a substantially better fighter. Crawford just hasn't um, you know, faced off against enough of these kind of high-caliber fighters. Uh, all of that said... I thought about this. I think you'd have to offer me something like, honestly, really, like plus 450 before I'm going to even think about laying a bet on Porter. Because even though I fully expect Sean to give Bud all kinds of trouble, especially early, Bud can do so many things and do them so well that I fully expect him to begin to adapt and to start turning Porter's aggressive style. And bless his heart, Porter's a terrific advertisement for the sport, but you know what he's going to do. Um, and you know Bud's been prepping for it already, and I think he's going to start turning it against him. And my response to that isn't because I don't think highly of Sean Porter. I do, but I have from day one thought very, very highly of Terence Crawford, I, and I continue to think that he's an exceptionally good fighter, but that his career has not reached the heights it could and should have done because he's been on the wrong side of the street for his peak years. But he does have enough still in him, I think, to potentially finish strong over the next couple of years, and Porter could be the start of that. Hmm. As you were talking, after you said that plus 450, I figured, what the heck, let me jump on one of my uh, ah. online sports books here and just take a look if anyone's posted the odds yet. You will be slightly disappointed to know you're not getting plus 450 based on the one sports book I'm glancing at. They right. have it. Crawford minus 475, Porter plus 350. So you're not quite okay, not getting the price you're looking off. for. Right. Mm, and we'll we'll see uh, we'll see uh, how how the odds expand as the you know the sharps start coming in and and so on and so forth. But yeah, interesting. Sound, think sounds like a money, money punch, punch topic. Yep. I think <laughs> I have a money punch coming. <laughs> All right, um, we are going to split our news undercard into two sections this week. Uh, first, the serious fights that have been announced on the home network: Brandon Figueroa against Stephen Fulton, originally set for September 18th, but delayed due to COVID has been rescheduled for November 27th. 
Thanksgiving weekend with the full undercard featuring Raiz Alim and Gary Antonio Russell. Uh, that remains intact. Uh, DAZN and Matchroom announced several fights this week. On October 16th, Mikey Garcia faces Sandor Martin. On October 30th, Halloween Eve, a heavyweight clash between Dillian White and Otto Valin. I love that. And on December 18th, another showdown between top 10-ish heavyweights, uh, Joseph Parker, Derek Chisora, two. And lastly, Tim Su's next fight uh, has been set. He meets Takeshi Inoue, no relation to Noya, on November 17th in Australia. Uh, Eric, give me a quick thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways on each of these fights. Okay. Uh, thumbs up, of course, to Figueroa Fulton. We're psyched for that one. We've made that clear. And I like the Thanksgiving Saturday fight. Um, you know, it makes me less likely to want to push our bosses at Showtime to have us there in attendance. But as a TV option, <laughs> I love a good Thanksgiving Saturday card. Uh, Garcia Martin, thumbs down. Martin it is not world class. That looks like a fairly pointless mismatch. White Valin, it sounds like you were going thumbs up on that yep. one. I certainly am, too. I, I, I love that matchup. Both excellent contenders. I truly have no idea yet which one I favor. No. Uh, Parker Chisora, too. Thumbs sideways, I guess. Mm. It's not mm. a rematch I needed to see. But it was competitive the first time. Parker getting off the deck early to win a close decision. It's fine, I suppose. And Zhu, in a way... I'll again go thumbs sideways, but quivering slightly in an upward direction. Um, it's 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 a decent fight for Zhu. In a way, went the distance against Jaime Munguia, though he lost every round. So this fight might tell us a little something about Zhu. But yeah, Figueroa Fulton and White Valine are the two clear jewels of this bunch. Yeah. So uh, so I'll just sit back and wait to see what unusual circumstances cause them both to be postponed, because this is boxing <laughs> and we cannot have nice things. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, now for our second batch of news undercard items, which is a mishmash of the weird and the washed. Retired fighters Marco Antonio Barrera and Daniel Ponce de Leon have announced an exhibition November 20th in Albuquerque to honor the late Johnny Tapia. Another exhibition has been announced for October 23rd in St. Thomas. James Tony versus Jeremy Williams as the efforts to recycle old heavyweights in the wake of the Mike Tyson Roy Jones financial smash continues. On that note, Evander Holyfield versus Vitor Belfort was not a financial success. We have the pay-per-view numbers. It sold about 150,000 buys, which is actually slightly more than I might have predicted, but not enough to prevent the show from losing money. Speaking of sideshow-type pay-per-view fights, Jake Paul says there will be no rematch with Tyron Woodley because Woodley has welched on his promise to get an I Love Jake Paul tattoo. Uh, we have some Manny Pacquiao news. He's officially running for president of the Philippines. He has accepted the party nomination of the PDP Laban Pacquiao faction. And lastly, Judge Stephen Blay, who scored last week's Oscar valdez robson Concesao fight 117-110 for Valdez, took the very rare step of admitting he screwed up. In an open letter, he said he rewatched and rescored it, and his card should have been 115-112 or 114-113, and he wants to undergo more training before taking another title fight assignment. Kieran, quick thoughts on any of these items? First of all, much respect to Stephen Blay. Uh, judges are human, with the possible exception of the racist monster who shafted Michael Fox a few <laughs> yes. weeks ago. Um, they want to get it right. 
uh, they generally get very upset when they don't. Uh, fans don't always like to hear that. They don't like to see anybody in sports. The athletes, the officials, the media is actual living, breathing human beings uh, who want to do the right things. But they all have off nights, all of them. Uh, the problem with judges having off nights is that the repercussions can be just immense. Uh, it doesn't matter if you or I have a shitty scorecard. It's just fodder for the other one of us to have fun. <laughs> right. But it matters a lot. If a judge gets it wrong, it can affect a book affect the boxer's career, his earnings, and so much more. And so what you need to do is to try and reduce the error factor as much as possible. And I think a willingness to learn and be, and be self-critical is an important part of that. So yes, thanks indeed to Mr. Blay for acknowledging that he can always learn and be better, as can we all. As an old Greenpeace colleague of mine used to say, every day is a school day. Hmm. So there you go. I always thought that was a good little aphorism to live by. Uh, what all else? Um... As bad as the Holyfield Belfort figures are, are, were, and they were really bad when you consider how much everyone involved was getting paid, I agree with you. They're actually a smidgen better than I expected. Um, I suspect the presence of the orange man goosed the numbers a little for yeah. a certain demographic, mm -hmm. but, you know, he didn't come cheap. So who knows right. whether that was a net plus or not. Um, I honestly, I don't know. Maybe after the last couple of weeks of just relentless misery, I'm just allowing the ridiculously, absurdly optimistic side of me to come in but i kind of hope that that spectacle was so cataclysmically awful and such a financial loss that maybe just maybe the bubble might be beginning to burst on this um yep. look tony and williams are going to do their thing in the virgin islands um the next one up and the real test to see if it can get stopped is the riddick bow versus lamar odom yeah awfulness uh, we'll talk about that if that's still on the cards uh in a few weeks these matchups are not only bad it's like holyfield belfort Bo odom they're not only bad they're offensive and dangerous and they're also not the money makers that some of those involved seem to think they are I, right. so i just have a feeling and maybe it's a faint hope that the worst may be almost behind us here not because everyone's going to start being attacked by a fit of ethics but because people are bleeding money at, on these things now. Um, the new COO for Triller, Thorsten Meyer, who's a good guy. I know him reasonably well, actually. He's mm. been involved a lot with the Klitschko's and with Gennady Golovkin. Um, he said that Triller wants to stay in boxing, but wants to get rid of some of the nonsense and start moving towards serious events, beginning with Teofimo Lopez against George Cambosis. Uh, I'm sure he personally does, but we shall see. Um, the one sort of circus sideshow who is still going to continue to make some money is Jake Paul. Um, and as for that lack of rematch, yeah, meh. Um, I, I, as we discussed, Jake Paul himself might be done with this shtick for a, for a while, or he might not. Um, and I don't really care too much. Although, as I've said before, what interests me if he's, is if he uses his drawing power to bring eyes and money to legit boxes on his undercards like he did last time, which I thought was terrific. Uh, if that happens, I care. If it doesn't, I don't. Yeah, and and at least he's in his physical prime, so it's indeed. It's he's not very good, but it, it's in so many right. ways less upsetting than seeing these Holyfields and Tonys and Bows wheeled out there for just being just taking punches that they really don't need to be taking. The more time goes on, the less and less and less of an issue I have with Jake Paul being a person who gets into the boxing ring. It's amazing. He is like not even. <laughs> He's not even on the top 10 list of his right. things to be worried about in boxing these days, I think, probably. All right. Kieran Mulvaney, officially huge Jake Paul fan. That's what I heard. Right massive. There. Okay. Massive. That's right. exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm getting uh, a tattoo. I've made an arrangement with Tyron Woodley. <laughs> You're getting the I love Jake Paul tattoo? 
Yeah, in exactly the spot where Mike Tyson has his tattoo. <laughs> People on the internet with good Photoshop skills, find a photo oh, yeah. of Kieran and work there your you magic. Go. There you go. Yeah, okay. probably buried the lead there. Probably could have said that up earlier, but there you go. All right. All right. Um, enough of the washed and weird. Let's go back to a time when Evander Holyfield could generate a lot more pay-per-view buys. Uh, let's do the top five list. And what you assigned me last week was... The top five fights to remind people why Holyfield is an all-time great. You said you were giving me something easy, and I would say it lived up to that billing. (laughs) I really only even considered seven fights. The honorable mentions are going to be brief this week. Not to say he only had seven great performances. He probably had 25 or 30 that were highly impressive in some way. But knowing I was looking for the top five, to me, there were only seven from his illustrious 56-fight career on or around that particular tier. And at number five, in a close, debatable call over my two honorable mentions, I'm going with October 25th, 1990 at the Mirage in Las Vegas, the night Evander won the heavyweight championship of the world against Buster Douglas. Yes, Buster was out of shape, unmotivated, couldn't handle success. He was there to be taken. But you have to give Holyfield credit for the way he took what he was handed, dominated pretty much every second of the fight. And in just the third round, as a supposedly undersized 208-pound heavyweight perfectly countered a lead uppercut thrown from too far away, it still stands as the example everyone uses of why you don't throw an uppercut from distance. (laughs) And that was it. One punch, Buster was done, and the real deal was the undisputed heavyweight champ. An important win for Holyfield, obviously, but also one of the best examples you could show someone to illustrate just how good he was. One of the few memorable Holyfield fights in which he didn't have to rally back or overcome a rough patch. He just dominated this one. Yeah. Well, can I say I have that at number five myself? Ah, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know uh, what that portends, but we'll see. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see if we have the same number four. I have there a fight that most definitely was not all one-way traffic. Probably one of the top two most entertaining Evander Holyfield action fights. The one that made him a champion at cruiserweight, the only time he ever had to go 15 rounds. July 12th, 1986, his 15-round split decision win over future Hall of Famer Dwight Muhammad Kawi. Evander has called it his greatest night in the ring and also said he was growing tired in the fourth round and had to spend the next 11 digging deep. Uh, He claimed he lost 15 pounds over the course of the fight. So, yeah, simply put, it was grueling. And, of course, it was a massive step up. Just Holyfield's 12th pro fight, he hadn't faced anyone world-class yet. And he goes right in against the number one cruiserweight and beats him in an absolute war. This was always making my list. Just a matter of Mm -hmm. what number. I'm putting it at four. I have it a little higher, but I have it on the list. Uh, Arguably still, I think, fair to say, the greatest cruiserweight fight of all time. Am I missing anything? I don't think think you are. I think it's it's still got to be number one on that list. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, So you said when assigning this that Holyfield didn't have to win the fight for it to qualify. So here comes the one defeat that makes my top five. If Cowie wasn't the best action fight he was ever in, then it's this one. November 13th, 1992, the first fight with Riddick Bowe, the first loss of Holyfield's career, and a clear loss. No question about it. Bowe won the fight. But the heart Evander showed makes this one of his greatest performances. Just watch round 10, the round of the year, one of the most thrilling heavyweight rounds ever fought. Evander is badly hurt, nearly out of it, but he kept coming. 
against this guy who was bigger, taller, and during his very brief prime, could fight just as well on the inside as Evander could. Yeah. Riddick Bow should have been an all-time great. Evander lost two of three to Bow, but had the far better career because their work ethics were nothing alike. Even in defeat, you get a great sense of why Holyfield is a living legend from watching these 12 rounds against Big Daddy Bo. Yeah, I have it at number six. Uh, Not because it it wasn't, you know, one of the very best fights, but did give it a slight minus because of Anderlost. Um, I think in terms of the quality of the fight, and honestly, we've said already, just we're barely halfway through this, and already we've got plus probably the greatest cruiserweight fight of all time, one of the greatest heavyweight fights of all time, including one of the very best rounds in a heavyweight mm-hmm. fight of all time. And we haven't even gotten to the, you know, the, the top couple yet. So this, I think, already, if you didn't really understand why Evander Holyfield was regarded as an all-time great, you got to be getting a good idea of it already. Yeah. All right. Well, at number two, I have another Holyfield bow fight, uh, the one that Evander won. November 6th, 1993, Caesars Palace. It's remembered mostly for Fan Man dropping in during round seven, but it should also be remembered as the time Holyfield figured out a way to beat a guy he was at all these disadvantages against. This is certainly also a top five, that's why Emmanuel Stewart was an all-time great trainer fight, um, (laughs) as Emmanuel joined Team Holyfield and helped devise the game plan to beat Bo. Was Evander aided by the fan man interruption? Arguably. We'll never know uh, exactly what would have happened had that guy not dropped from the sky. Um, It was a close fight either way. The widest any judge had it was two points, but Holyfield won a majority decision. He figured out a way to beat the toughest opponent he faced in his prime. I'm not considering the Lennox Lewis fights Evander's prime. Uh, This has to be high on the Holyfield list. I'm putting it at number two. Uh, and I had it at number three. Okay. Um, and I have, by the way, Kawi one was at number two for me. So, okay, gotcha. So we're we're very close here. And yeah, you have to you have to put it in there for all kinds of reasons. Not only that it was uh, already shaping up to be a very close fight, but Evander honestly dealt with the interruption more smartly than Riddick did. Um, he sort of covered himself up with towels and whatnot, whereas Riddick, I think, was mostly still walking around the ring for a long, a long period, if I recall correctly. Um, and yeah, this was just a, a magnificent performance, I think, to be able to turn this around against Riddick Bowe like this. So absolutely up there. I have it at number three. Okay. I, so think, I, ha- I think we probably have the same number one. Probably. And I haven't hit your number four yet either. Is that correct? correct? Okay. All right. So my number one. You can't go wrong with a 34-year-old fighter believed by many to be washed, believed by most to be risking his life fighting Mike Tyson on November 9th, 1996. But Holyfield, he never had a moment's doubt. Uh, This was the pinnacle for him, his life's work on display. You know, his destiny was to beat up the bully if he ever got a chance to fight him. And finally, he did get that chance. And Holyfield, as much as a 17-to-1 underdog at one point, dominated Tyson, dropped him, and stopped him in the 11th round. To me, this was the fight that elevated his legacy from, yep, he was a good heavyweight champ, he'll make the Hall of Fame, to this is one of the all-time great heavyweights, he's got to be in any reasonable all-time top 10, and maybe we even need to start thinking about whether he's the next guy on the list after Ali and Joe Lewis, (laughs) maybe. Um, In retrospect... Tyson wasn't so great in 1996. You do have to say that. 
But that wasn't the perception coming in, and he was still good enough to blow through everyone else in his path, and Holyfield stood up to him. This is the crowning achievement for Evander, clearly. Absolutely. I remember uh, I watched this on um, you know pay-per-view at home in my apartment in Washington, D.C. at the time, and you know, wasn't really part of a community of folks who liked boxing. And afterwards, I just remember having to go for a walk. And I just like everybody, I, I wanted to stop everyone who was walking on the sidewalk. Be like, <laughs> oh my God, did you just see what happened? It, it, it was that momentous uh, uh, of a fight and of an event. And partly because, yeah, there was there was a big expectation that Tyson was just going to wipe out Evander, uh, particularly given that there'd been some doubts about Holyfield's health uh, as well as his age going into that. And right in that first round, Tyson, you know, uh, landing like the double hook, uh, the hook to body and head and, and staggering Evander early. And it looked, oh, this is going to be a short night. But Holyfield just stood in there. And as we know, it's a thing to do with Mike Tyson, just out bullied the bully and uh, and, and really took him apart. Uh, it has to be number one. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So like I said, I only have two honorable mentions, uh, and I guess one of them is probably your number four. Now, there was a third fight that I thought about for just a hot second, um, which was the rematch with Lennox Lewis. That was a mm. good performance from Evander, all things considered, but there's not really much of a case to put it in the top five. So that's not one of my two that I did consider. The two that I could see a case for are the rematch with Tyson, the bite fight, uh, a defining moment for Evander in terms of character. And also for casual fans, that's definitely the fight he's best right. known for. Um, and the other KO 10 Michael Dokes in 1989 on his way up the heavyweight ranks, just an all out war, the somewhat forgotten Holyfield classic. It aired on Showtime, uh, of course, as did the Tyson fights. It's number three, I would say, behind Bo one and Cowie one for thrills and action. Um, and it proved Holyfield could overcome a quality heavyweight uh, despite being small for the division. So a, a really important fight in his progression is one of those two, either the bite fight or Dokes, your number four. Dokes is because okay. I thought it was the fight that really showed, as you mentioned, that he had what it took to to compete in the heavyweight division and to, and to compete well. And obviously there's a slight asterisk there. Dokes was not what he had been. Um, he'd gone off the rails in his personal life a little bit. And so was, was, you know, coming back somewhat, but just the way in which, uh, Holyfield displayed skill and speed and strength and outbox and outfought Michael Dokes. I thought it was a pretty, and it was an entertaining fight as yes. well. Like it was yeah. a super entertaining bow. Like you said, it's, it's a little bit forgotten, but it was, uh, it was a cracking fight to watch. And also I felt like what it meant for Evander Holyfield in terms of people now thinking, oh, okay, maybe he's not just going to be a blown up cruiserweight who's going to get his ass kicked at heavyweight. So yeah, that did sneak in in there for me at number four yeah and as i was uh, doing my research i came across a, a note that uh ring magazine this was before i was there uh, so i didn't know this but ring magazine actually at the end of the 80s called it the best heavyweight fight of the 80s which is uh, hmm. so not that the heavy not that the 80s right. were a great <laughs> decade for great heavyweight fights it was you know the larry holmes era and the early tyson era and uh so a lot of dominance from tyson and uh holmes had some good fights not a lot of great ones i guess in the 80s so yeah there there's that to consider but still best heavyweight fight of the entire decade is uh, how they regarded holyfield dokes yeah yeah uh the only other one that i put in there is sort of like an honorable mention was the michael mora rematch yeah simply because having lost that first fight the fact that he you know fairly fustigated mora the second time around and that was part of his purple patch 
really and and uh it, it sort of began to go downhill a little bit after that um uh yeah that was really about it actually uh the burt cooper one was was fun because it was so back and forth because evander was actually taken to places they didn't expect burt cooper to take him um and so i sort of had that on there not necessarily as one that showed how great he was but what a fun fighter he could be that was the only other one that i had on my list there. yeah I, both the burt cooper fight and the george foreman fight kind of crossed my mind as you know memorable but maybe not great evander performances it you mm. can even argue he kind of underperformed relative to ex- definitely against cooper that was relative to expectations he struggled a lot more than he was supposed to and and the foreman fight very good fight remembered more as a great statement by foreman than exactly than for anything evander did yeah exactly all right so you're welcome <laughs> i may or may not repay the favor i make no promises yeah, you, one could argue that that's me repaying you for the uh, Miguel Cotto guinea that's, for right. a month or two ago. So right. there you go. Okay. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, thanks again to Jericho O'Quinn for joining us. Uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun talking yeah. to him uh, or being talked to by him. Uh, <laughs> we might be back this Friday with a Money Punch podcast, uh, depending on what odds we find on the show box fight or whether we have bets we like for Joshua Usyk. We'll certainly be looking out for that. Either way, we will certainly be dropping a podcast next Monday with post-fight analysis of all those fights. Until our next episode, be safe. Be kind and be well.